You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode 89. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. And today we are very lucky to have with us a guest, Mr. David Gallagher, who is the writer behind The Only Living Boy, as well as DC's Green Lantern Convergence. Hi, guys. How, thank you for having me. Well, David, thank you for coming on. Uh, oh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure. Very excited to have you on. So let's just kind of get into it. David, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into into comics and being a comic creator? Oh, God. Uh, well, my parents, uh, the first movie I ever saw in the theater was the first Superman movie when it debuted. So I think that uh, I think I was three years old. So I think that began a lifelong obsession with uh, superheroes yeah. and uh, eventually comic books. You know, I was raised on the Super Friends and the Wonder Woman TV show and the Hulk and uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And I think that that sort of that saturation led me into um, really loving those worlds of those characters. You know, my introduction to comic books proper sort of came at the same time as my introduction to role-playing. So, you know, those teenage years when you're trying to suss things out. So um, both my love of comics and my love of role-playing helped me kind of create, in a way, my career in comics. Both, you know, I was reading Marvel Comics for a long time, and I got involved in the Marvel Superheroes role-playing game and transitioned to D Dungeons & Dragons and eventually, like, the Palladium games, like, Rifts and Nightbane, and mm -hmm. and then eventually into uh, the World of Darkness books. And so one of my first published comics was a World of Darkness Vampire the Masquerade graphic novel. So yeah, so you know, so comics has always sort of gone hand in hand with role playing games for me. And and I think that that's it sort of created that lifelong love. And um, both both in terms of the fantasy worlds and stuff, but also in terms of like my sense of morals and values. So I was always really interested in helping people. My undergraduate degrees in neuroscience, because I was really interested in uh, working with helping people with special developmental disabilities. And when I went to do my master's, I had the opportunity to do a thesis about using comic books to help children with developmental disabilities read. That led to an internship at Marvel Comics. And I was at Marvel for three years working in digital comics uh, for them, we did some of the very first comics that were ever available digitally. Just go to marvel.com, and there were stories with Gambit and Iron Man and Spider-Man. And then, yeah, so then from there, you know, that experience at Marvel led to gigs at Moonstone Books, at, at Image, at DC Comics. Um, so it's been, you know, uh, it's been sort of a roundabout way, just a really fun thing, really fun experience. Yeah, you've kind of had the opportunity to work kind of across the, the various comic publishing agents right well and i think that each of my experiences so you know like every experience of my life i was able to bring to my stories so you know like there's a lot of world building that's required when you write a comic book and when you're game mastering there's a you lean on those experiences and you you know you're like oh well, how do i build this world for my characters and those experiences are really great when you're you know writing comic books like how do i build a really robust engaging world for my players. So there's a lot of, so those skills kind of dovetail nicely. Like um, one of the things I, I really thought about a lot as a GM is how do I make each player feel like they're contributing to something significant in the game? 
And so when I'm doing that as a game master, you know, I make very specific props for those specific players. And as a, you know, as a comic book storyteller, that's the other thing I do is like, how do I make my individual characters feel like they've got their own storylines and really shine? So, yeah, but those experiences, like I said, every experience I've had in life has really sort of contributed to both what I do in gaming and, and what I do as a comic book storyteller. Very cool. So obviously you mentioned some of your <clears throat> more recent work was with DC Comics uh, during their Convergence event. I'm a fairly avid comic book fan and have been for about nine, ten years now. Can you explain Convergence to those of those who are unfamiliar? Because I'll be honest, even I had a hard time following that one. It was it was fun. It was a little tricky. Oh yeah. So the way I can the way I think about Convergence is that so you've got the way I think of it is is sort of really easy. So you know Brainiac created Candor, right? The bottled city of Candor. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. So he essentially did this on a planet wide scale, creating this very curated planet wide thing where he captures all of these doomed civilizations right before major catastrophes. So whether it's right before uh, zero hour, right before crisis on infinite earth, right before like the new 52. And he captures all of these little worlds and puts them into little bubbles and then so brainiac eventually evolved into this creature telos and i'm giving you sort of a super shorthand version and then he's like well sh well you know the best society can survive the one that that wins can then be the winner they will be the the society that i will then incorporate into the, my larger worldview of of what everything is because you know yeah. Yeah, very Darwinian, but also think about it this way is it's yeah, in a way it's kinda cool. Like I've got all this stuff. I imagine it it's sort of like from a, a both a collector standpoint and from a, a reader standpoint. Like, have you guys ever had like large collections of things of like broken toys? Or <laughs> and you're like, I don't really want to throw this toy away because it has sentimental value for me. But maybe this broken toy is more valuable than this broken toy. So you, you're kind of sussing it out. Your collection sometimes gets too big and you're like, well, I'm going to give these toys to my niece and I'm going to give these comics to my nephew and I'm going to give these comics to, you know, and uh, I'm going to mail them away to an army group and I'm going to throw these comics to the curb. I imagine that that's basically how, you know, how Convergence basically was. It's like, hey, now I've got all these societies and, you know, some of them aren't just as good as the rest of them. So I'm going to kick some of them to the curb. I'm going to keep the rest and I'm going to let the rest of these guys fight it out. Interesting. That's convergence in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, convergence was kind of fun in, in, in the fact that you got a lot of very deep cuts in terms of continuity, especially for DC when they've got so many of these effectively dead universes to pull from. Right. Well, you know, and it's really interesting because I had, we had done before we had done Steve Ellis and I, before we had done DC Convergence, you know, we had worked together for high, we had done a werewolf Western series called High Moon for DC Comics, which was on their digital comics platform Zuda for a while. And, you know, so we were handpicked by Dan DiDio to, to contribute stuff for the story. And I actually worked for the New York City Police Department for five years in the recruitment division between comic gigs. And so I was able to draw on a lot of that experience when working on Green Lantern Convergence. So that was a lot of fun. Nice. That's awesome. Now, did you get to pick the the fact that it was a, a Guy Gardner-centric story? Uh, they had asked me to, sort of. They had asked me, they said, okay, David, it's going to, it has to be, it's Green Lantern Corps, it's got to be a story about Guy, 
and John and Hal and John Stewart is the Green Lantern. And I said, oh, okay. So um, I did get to make it a Guy Gardner centric story, but they're they had very specific directions with where all these characters were. So yeah, so there was a lot of feedback and we ultimately together decided to make it a Guy Garner centric story. And then I was like, Oh, well, so it's a Guy Garner centric story. This is a character I absolutely hate. So how can I make a really <laughs> awesome, awesome Guy Gardner story? And now Guy Gardner is my favorite Green Lantern. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big Guy Gardner fan. It's just, it's difficult because most of the time he gets written, he's just kind of straight up an asshole. And there's not a whole well, lot of further character development beyond that. Well, and but when I realized why he was an asshole, I'm sorry, I don't use the curse on podcasts. So uh, when I realized why he was an asshole, um, uh, then it made, then that's, that sort of broke the story for me. So uh, I don't know how much you guys know about Guy Gardner as a Green Lantern, but the thing that really made the story interesting for me is, like I said, my, I have a background in neuroscience. And when I realized that Guy Gardner was actually... So Guy had substituted for Hal uh, for a couple of issues in Green Lantern. And uh, when Guy went to... Hal was out in outer space and it was Green Arrow and Guy Gardner teaming up battling this weird, crazy, giant floating eye thing. And after they beat it, Guy Gardner went to recharge his ring, the ring, and it exploded. And nobody could find him. And he was presumed dead. And so Guy, and this is in the, you know, Green Lantern, Green Arrow issues. So Hal was like, oh, well, I guess Guy's dead. I might as well go contact his next of kin. Not being able to find any next of kin for Guy Gardner he finds Guy's fiance Carrie Limbo, and Hal and Carrie Limbo uh, get involved in in both a romantic and physical, uh, intimately weird way. Right. And uh, they get they Hal and Hal and Carrie get engaged, and then they go to get married in a weird cover that says like, "With these rings, I thee wed," and it's you know a very formal wedding ceremony kind of thing. And, uh, but from, like, if you guys have seen the cover, I think it's Green Lantern, Green Arrow, 122. And then it's, you see it, and it's, like, Guy getting, I mean, Hal getting married to this girl. And then you say, like, this wedding cannot proceed. And you see this giant green hand on the cover. It's really interesting because you find out that Guy, this whole time, was actually trapped in the Phantom Zone. And when the battery blew up, he was trapped in the Phantom Zone. Hal goes to rescue him where um, Guy Gardner is actually lobotomized by General Zod and the criminals from the Phantom Zone. And then further lobotomized and manipulated by Sinestro in Quartz. So he is like, his his psyche is damaged. Guy, uh, Hal saves him, but then Guy is a complete vegetable. And he doesn't come back again until Crisis where not all of his brain damage has been restored. So it was really interesting to to realize that, like, oh, crap, if I were Guy, I'd, I'd really, really, really hate uh, Hal Jordan because yeah. he slept with my fiancé, he ignored me, and then, like, couldn't save me. Like, I would just be so upset. Like, here's this guy, like, all Guy has ever wanted to do was be a hero and, and try to do his best to uphold heroic values, really sacrificing himself and doing a lot. And then this guy who's like this golden boy comes in 
it's like Captain Kirk sleeping with your girlfriend. He comes in, sleeps with your girlfriend, leaves you for dead, comes back. You're like, oh, oh, by the way, I've got the power ring and I slept with your girlfriend and uh, you're a vegetable. I mean, so it made sense that when Guy came back, he was like not all there. And so that re- became a really interesting departure point for a story. It's like, here, here's this guy who's got this, this trauma, this post-traumatic stress of being like, literally like abused and manipulated and physically damaged and what does that do to your psyche so it was interesting to to sort of play that and and recognize that guy garner's a good guy and he does all the right things and all the wrong things for all the right reasons so he's he's i i refer to it as he's irrationally heroic you know like he is a guy who will do the craziest things because he thinks it's the right thing to do not always necessarily knowing what the long-term consequences are going to be. So, like, if, if Guy were, I've explained this before, if Guy were a Ghostbuster, for instance, okay, and uh, they were investigating a haunted house, everybody else would go into the house, but Guy would be the guy who'd be like, no, I'm going to set the house on fire, and the house will no longer be haunted. Okay, I see that's, your point. Yeah, that's that's fair. Right? So he's like, oh, it's a haunted house. I'm going to burn it down. Not knowing that, okay, well, if I burn down the house, the house is no longer haunted. But, oh, right, people live there. And uh, I've just unleashed ghosts into the atmosphere rather than, like, taking care of the problem. It, but the original problem of, is is taken care of. So really his job is done. <laughs> so he's, yes, exactly. So they're like, you you burned down our house. I was like, yeah, the house was haunted. I burned it down. The house isn't haunted anymore because it's, it's that logic. It's that logic that makes him so interesting. It, it's he's doing, he, he follows what people want him to do because they're like, well, fix this problem. He fixes it, but he fixes it totally wrong, but his heart is in it. And he, he believes the doing the right thing is, is important. And he tries really hard. And that to me is, that to me is something. He's the guy who, like, it's easy for John. It's easy for Hal. They come about this things, these things, almost like like second nature. But it's harder for Guy because he tries and he's oh, trying to overcome these obstacles and this trauma, and he's doing the best he can. And I think that there's there's something in that that's actually more heroic thing than what Hal and uh, John Stewart have to overcome. Yeah, I was going to say, when it comes to Guy Gardner, he's obviously not the smartest guy in the world, right? He's not the most talented. He's not the most capable. It's the brain damage. Yeah, but like he always does what, what he feels he is the best thing he can do. And as far as he can tell, it is. Obviously, obviously right. it's often it's not, but. Right. No, and that's, and like I said, that's what makes it, that's what makes him more heroic to me than, than anything else. That is absolutely incredible. You have made me feel empathy for this character in a, a brilliant way. That was fantastic. Now, now go and read parts of Jeff Johns' run of that empathy may wander away, but... <laughs> Good point. So, yeah, so that's, you know, but that became uh, that became the, the selling point for the character for me. And so in the first, uh, you know, the the first issue, he... Of uh, the, you know, it's it's cool to write that stuff because you uh, we wrote I wrote that stuff not thinking that I would ever write that character again. I was like, well, if I'm never going to write this character again, 
what am I going to include? Well, clearly I'm going to have to include some Super Friends references. Clearly yep. I'm going to have to show that he's a good guy. And before he was a Green Lantern, he was a coach. So I wanted to show him interacting with kids. And I wanted to show him uh, being a good guy. I wanted to show his home life and how he feels with his life coming apart. I wanted to show the old school Guy Gardner fans will remember he's a big comic book fan. So I have like a little comic book poster in the issue uh to me he was like to me in that first issue of, of convergence he's very much like uh james gardner in the rockford files you know he's somebody who is just down on his not down on his luck but tries really hard he's a good guy but he doesn't have all the pieces there and then when the second issue is a little bit more ludicrous and out there but he's more like james gardner from maverick he's a guy who's found his swagger and mm -hmm. is you know riding a motorcycle and hitting dragons in the face and arm wrestling gods and you know singing the mighty mouse theme song like he's the, right, that right. Kind of, that kind of guy and and that to me is when he has that swagger he's that ludicrous hero who who doesn't doesn't care he's just doing the right thing and he's like oh shucks i'm gonna do the right thing and it's actually going to be the absolutely wrong thing, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to save the day. And yeah, it's going to be ludicrous. And yes, I'm going to sing the Mighty Mouse theme song. And yes, I'm going to ride a motorcycle, hit dragons in the face with baseball bats. And yes, I'm going to punch Hal Jordan in the face because he deserves it. But at the end of the day, like our job as heroes is to rescue people and help people and do the best and overcome our obstacles as best we can and fight off. The things that hold us back and and that to me it was was what was a lot of fun about writing those those issues yeah it's funny you mentioned you know the super friends reference and the comic book reference and the mighty mouse theme song you have some some deep references in there at one point you use the phrase fear is the mind killer and i'm driving <laughs> yes. i'm driving in the car with my wife while she, she's driving i'm reading not i'm i'm not you know reading while driving but i just start cracking up and she's like I, what and i tried to explain it to her and she's never seen dune so <laughs> yeah but that's that, that's exactly it so yeah i mean there's a there's a, a visual gag to the rockford files in there there's uh you know there's anything that i could put in there that i thought would be um that would be a lot of fun or like a little nod so john stewart works for mosaic yep i caught I mean, that super, super dumb stuff but yeah so i really <laughs> tried to do a lot of things that i thought were would be a lot of fun and visually interesting you know i there's a puff the magic dragons reference but but yeah but it's also me, nice that you don't hand it to your readers because if there's i mean a lot of people that read comics are really smart and and it's nice to not be pandered to you know not to have it handed to you it's just sort of a, a nod and a wink to those who know and and moving on for those that don't right and and that's what's important is it's important to me like i came to guy gardner relatively not relatively fresh but i had a lot of baggage to overcome and what were the opportunities that i had to to tell his story in a way that uh, made people chuckle and that made that made people chuckle but that were also fun and not like snarky that's the one thing i really mm -hmm. don't like about i don't really like sort of self-referential snark or things that are too smart by half you know i like stories that are approachable i like stories that a 14 year old can read i like stories that a, a six-year-old can read i like stories that a 55 year old man can read so like for me, what what makes it approachable, what makes it fun, and what makes it, this is going to sound weird, but what makes it aspirational? 
it's hard when you're part of these multi unit saga issues, you know, where you're you're part of this multiverse and you're trying to make your story stand alone as a good story that it could exist outside of this larger, more complex uh, storytelling tapestry. You want your story to be good. Uh, you want people to get into it and you want it to not be challenging for them as readers. So like our, our goal is obviously like the way a lot of the convergent, I don't want to throw any other creators under the bus, but the way a lot of the other stories and convergence were set up were that the basically, you know, I, th I think I mentioned like is battle of these two worlds, you know, like, so you'd see like, Oh, we're going to fight this guy at the end of this issue. Like, so it might be, um, might be flash and then, uh, Flash from Crime Syndicate or Flash versus like Tangent Universe or Vertigo Universe or Gen 13 or whatever. And, you know, they'd set up the character's home story. And then by the, the last page of the issue, it was a fight a, with some other character from something. And that last page of almost every issue was like, oh, it's, we're fighting Gen 13 or, oh, we're fighting Wildcats or, oh, we're fighting whatever. And what I really wanted to do was tell a story about Guy fighting how and all the other stuff is important and we see the other worlds that guy and how have to deal with but for me it's it's how guy deals with this this personal conflict the other stuff how we deal with it is is cool and and fun and but at the same time like we want to tell a story that involves these characters that moves these characters a little bit further along on an emotional journey i think like that's a tough part of these crossovers is is how why does your story matter like as a writer why does my story matter and i feel like with what we were able to do with guy gardner we were able to show like hey this is guy gardner's not a bad guy and this gives his character a little extra uh an extra layer of depth very cool so i mean it, it's funny you i mean the, the way you had just put that I don't think I can transition a whole lot better into The Only Living Boy in terms of the kinds of comics you obviously want to write and the kind of comics you you currently are writing. I mean, this oh, is yeah, thanks. This this is I mean, the only so The Only Living Boy is is yourself and Steve Ellis and you're, it's put out uh, through Paper Cuts and you guys have, right. have three volumes. Uh, in three volumes, you guys have garnered yourselves four Harvey nominations, which is rather impressive. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's a really enjoyable book. Oh, thank you. So with The Only Living Boy, what was really interesting is that it's, for those who don't know, it's the story of a 12-year-old boy who runs away from home and finds himself without his memory in, like, this crazy patchwork world where he encounters mermaid warriors and insect princesses and mad scientists and dragons. And I used to describe it as, like, a cross between, like, the island of Dr. Moreau and the Jungle Book, where it's this really deep story with exotic monsters and mad scientists and sort of this crazy pulp level quality. But now that we're sort of deeper in to the story, I describe it more as like Thunder the Barbarian meets Bridge to Terabithia. So it's <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, but yeah, so it, it's been a lot of fun to work on. And, and that's, those are the kind of stories that are really interesting for us. You know, Steve and I have been working together uh, for 10 years, we did High Moon together. We did uh, some Marvel books together. And it, what's really nice about this is that this is 
this is very much like like with the Green Lantern Corps stories. This story is both simultaneously aspirational, but also again deals with that like how do we how do we find resilience? Like how do we find emotional resilience when we feel like our world is gone? When we feel lonely? How do we when we're surrounded by all these crazy things in this ever-shifting world, how do we find stability? How do we find guidance? Where where are our beacons? And so, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, it's, we've got crazy flying insect cities. We've got dragons with multiple body parts. We've got crazy underground maps and bone skeleton roller coasters and crazy fun stuff. And it's a lot of fun to do. It almost sounds as though you are using some of your role-playing background to kind of drive the story. Do you find that you insert yourself into this comic? It's tough. I don't actually insert myself into this comic. There are comics I've written that I've definitely inserted myself into. But I, I used to be a special ed teacher, and so one of the things I've done is, like, Eric is sort of an amalgamation of uh, a student I used to teach, Steve's son, Jacob, certainly like my my background as like a, a teacher falls into that a little bit because sure, uh, sure. I moved and I also moved a lot as a kid. And so every time like I was born in Hawaii and I lived in England and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've lived in Georgia and Seattle and Oklahoma and Vermont. And so uh, some of that all comes into this, certainly like sure. how do we find different environments when you're living in the mountains how are things different when you're living you know down in the okifunoki swamp how are things different so certainly like some of the that comes in but i think that you know i grew up on role-playing games like one of the games that i loved a lot that i it's not that i took my inspiration from but certainly there are influences are it was a game called rifts which is a Canadian game where all these crazy ley lines, magical lines, tore this tore holes in the earth, and all these dimensional creatures came out. And I always liked that idea. And so, I mean, not that this is direct reference, but certainly an influence because I played the game. Uh, so I liked that idea. I like that idea that you're in a world where, I mean, it's a metaphor, obviously. Like when you're 12, the world that you know is very different than the world you're graduating into. Cause oh, yes. Because you're 12, and you, so you're in that weird prepubescent, pubescent maturity level stage. But grown-ups tell you, you like, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. These are the rules. Everybody follows the rules. And at 12, you gain that self-awareness where you recognize, like, oh, no, like nobody follows the rules. Nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> yep. You know, like, nobody knows what they're doing. And so how do you navigate that? How do you navigate a world that, you're told is one way, but you're learning it's something else. Like, what is that? What is that transition? Now, it used to be that some cultures actually developed rituals that allowed men and young women to guide themselves through that. You know, you, you see bar mitzvahs and bas mitzvahs, and certain like other cultures have these sort of rites of passage. Yeah, but there is no real rites of passage for. We don't really have them. We don't really celebrate them. So that's sort of Eric. Farrell, the main character in The Only Living Boy, this is sort of his rite of passage, just how he finds that temerity and how he finds that level of self-reliance and guidance to survive. Because we, I mean, we don't, none of us have it. How do you navigate uh, romance? How do you navigate diversity? How do you navigate 
uh, coming together despite your very, 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 very different cultural differences. So, yeah, so that's a lot of fun. So in, in some ways, yes, it is. I am inserted the way that every writer is inserted into a book. But also, like, I think about it in um, in terms of role playing. Like, I always want to create something that's really interesting for my players. And with The Only Living Boy, I always want to create something that's really interesting to my readers. So whether it's a, a, a sudden dark turn where you're like, oh, my God, the, the bad guy's secret intention is really revealed. Or whether it's like, oh, my God, like, I didn't anticipate that this character was really this you know, those reveals are always a lot of fun. And it's it's fun to have, like, our biggest, most diverse group of fans are, are 17 to 24-year-old girls. And to have them really gravitate to the story is, is fascinating to me, to get their feedback and to hear them, like, just really into these characters and really, like, fan fiction and shipping and all this other stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so cool. I... It's so amazing to see people so engaged with that stuff. That is fantastic. Uh, you are a brilliant storyteller. I mean, I, at this point, I'm just, I mean, even even aside from the words on the page, you, you really, I, I see why you're a, a GM. I really get it. <laughs> well, I mean, and a lot, I mean, so my, oh, thank you. That's, that's very kind. I mean, I, Steve is also, I mean, has a lot to deal with that too, is like, we work together really well. Uh, you know, we Skype. He used to live two blocks from my house, and now we Skype uh, back and forth. But we we really want to create these characters that feel alive and feel vivid. And that's and we want to have everybody play a part in some way to these stories. And that to me is important. You know, like it's amazing to see. It's amazing to see how the the GM and role playing game elements sort of fall into what we're doing yes different worlds different settings but also like in terms of what i love about gaming is that it gives you a rule structure so when you think about how characters fight i mean i know that characters don't fight in real life the way that like real life doesn't actually fall follow like rpg fighting stats but mm -hmm. at least it gives you a, a, a sense of drama like, I'm going to hit you. You're going to hit me. We're going to cross cut to like this cool move. You're going to do this cool power move, you know, and, and that's something that we, we try to think about or like, you know, it's we really try to think about how characters can take the initiative, how they parry, especially in a GM RPG kind of setting. We have that sort of in the back of our mind. Like if this were a game, oh, my goodness, I just botched that role. Oh, my goodness. I just. Score double damage or whatever. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, I love that approach. Especially looking at Only Living Boy, I'm a little surprised how much you guys decide, you guys choose to deal with the idea of loss. Every character really is dealing with some form of loss. Even even the ones that we don't realize at the time are dealing with it. And Eric, even to an extent, I mean, he's dealing with it significantly more than, than anyone else, but that, that seems to be a very strong theme throughout the, the three volumes. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that this is going to sound weird, but I think it's I think it's important to sort of talk about is that in a way. So I'll back up a bit. So are you guys have you guys heard of Nick Cave, the musician Nick Cave? I have not. No. Okay, so Nick Cave is a, a Australian musician. He usually plays with a band called the Dirty Three, or the Bad Seeds. Uh, 
if you've ever heard a, a lot of, he does a very famous song called Red Right Hand. It's on like on every spooky soundtrack ever. Uh, but anyway, he's a really fantastic musician. So I, after we're done talking, look him up. He's he's awesome. So uh, he he does a wrote this really really awesome a couple of years ago. Wrote this really really awesome lecture, and he said every love song is a sad song. Because every love song captures what he's called Dewinde, which is like this moment of longing that you can never again recapture. Because every love song is capturing a moment, but after that song is over, there's a, there's loss because there's nothing else. So our lives are constantly this this sense of loss and replenishment and loss and replenishment and loss and replenishment. And how we deal with that loss is what shapes us into the human beings we are. So like childhood in a lot of ways is, is a loss of innocence. I mean, you gain so many other things. You gave, gain autonomy, you gain confidence, you gain greater strength and sense of self, but you also lose so many other things. And I think that that's important. It's important to have those kinds of conversations. It's important to talk about that even though you lose something, it's not necessarily forgotten. You know, even though you lose something, you can still honor where you've come from. You can still honor where you've been as a, a, as a recognition of who you are now and who you will be in the future. Those are things that are, that are really important. And yes, loss is a huge part of of where a lot of these com- characters are coming from in The Only Living Boy, whether they've lost their civilizations and are rebuilding it, whether they've lost entire uh, species, uh, whether they've lost, you know, uh, whether they're, they're losing or about to lose their entire sense of identity, um, you know, and, or whether they've lost loved ones. You know, that is... That's really important. We have to have those conversations and not just in... YA, but also in a broader context, because we don't, we lock that stuff up. And I think it's important to have those conversations. Just because you lose something doesn't mean that joy is gone. Doesn't mean that life is over. It just means life is different. And how do we adapt to that? And that's, I, that's important. Yeah. That's, that's that's very profound. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, I don't know how to follow that with anything because that's absolutely brilliant. And I've, you know, I've had that thought before, but I've never crystallized it in, in such a, a brilliant way of putting it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so, in know, I, I think it's important to life is terrible, but life can also be awesome. And even though you've suffered something terrible, life is not over. Like, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's, that's important. I think that all the, I think that all the great superhero stories deal with loss. So Superman loses Krypton, Batman loses his parents, Spider-Man loses Uncle Ben, Diana, Wonder Woman leaves paradise, you know? So all of these characters are losing something that's important to them, but they never forget what's most important to them. So even Doctor Strange uses loses the use of his hands. You know, mm-hmm. Captain America loses World War Two. Like he, it's weird. He's a man out of time. He loses this entire era, and he is, has to adapt to this new one. So all these characters are, in a way, are losing something, 
and then using that loss as a way to reaffirm and build an identity. You know, it's not that, for the most part, it's not that their old life is over. It's just that it's just different. Yeah. Is yeah. Tony Stark's life better now as Iron Man or better when he, before he was Iron Man? Well, and but that's what also makes them so identifiable with the average person, right? We're, that's the one thing that we all sort of have had happen in our lives. Like you said, that middle school-ish time of, of life is when you go through a lot of loss and you feel it perhaps most strongly because you're at that point where all of a sudden you're starting to realize how long a year is, you know, really understand it. <laughs> right. And and you feel everything very deeply. I mean, you know, the crush that you have when you're 11 years old feels like it goes on forever, but it's about three weeks, you know, and you're, you're, you're just past that stage and you are, you're losing stuff and you're recognizing for perhaps the first time that when you lose a thing, you're, you're not going to get it back. You're not going to get that moment back. And so starting at that age, about the time you start reading comics, to be able to identify with all these characters, and, and especially with a character like the one that you're writing, just, it, it'll, it, that's what sucks you in, right? That's what sucks you into all these stories, and that's absolutely brilliant. And I'm, it's incredible that someone writing these is also understands that to that extent, because that's, you're exactly the person that those of us who love comics want to keep writing. Well, thank you. Thank you. So yeah. So anyway. So but despite the the loss, there there could still be adventure, and that's what we really want to hone in on. Is despite the fact that we uh, come from these these weird places of of loss and sorrow, um, that life can still be an adventure, and it can still be grand, and we can still triumph and, and battle monsters. And that's absolutely. It's not depressing. This is in, this is an incredible beginning. Yeah. Right. And I love characters that fight monsters. So like. I, I like it's so weird, but I, I believe I believe monsters are real, both like in a weird metaphorical sense, but also mm -hmm. in kind of like a non metaphorical sense. I mean, uh, not to get political, but I mean, look at our landscape and there are people who are definitely cruel to other human beings. And those are like the those are the monsters. And, then and the sometimes it feels like they're about to win. Right. And sometimes it feels like they're going to win. And so what do we do? How do we stand up and fight the monsters? Absolutely. Both the monsters of our past in the weird metaphorical sense and, and uh, you know, the monsters in our, uh, in our real lives. And I love heroes fighting monsters. I love it so much. Like, I have Guy Gardner fighting monsters. Like, because it's a cool visual. It's a cool David and Goliathy kind of visual, right? The yeah. small guy versus the big guy taking down the big guy with hope and optimism and, and giant hammers and baseball bats and, and whatever. So, like, whether it's Eric fighting Balakar or Dr. Once in The Own Living Boy or we wrote this series called Dark Star and the Winter Guard and we have a talking bear, like, riding on the back of dinosaurs hitting <laughs> monsters out of the sky and like kind of a flight of the valkyries kind of moment you like or it's you know cowboys wrestling werewolves in high moon like we yeah. like that like wrestling like like the Nemean lion and hercules kind of wrestling like if we have opportunities to show characters to visualize that i think that 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 is both profound for the reader but also it's a lot of fun i mean it's fun like yeah. How are we going to make this cool character fight this awesome thing? I, I don't know. There's a there's a scene in um, Only Living Boy 3 that I love. and it's Or Volume 2. Sorry, Volume 2 that I love. It's all these monsters are, f like, converging on Sectaris, the, the hive city. And 
uh, Morgan, who's like this mermaid warrior, is teaming up with Phaedrus, this kind of insect prince. And they're like, well, uh, you know, he's like, oh, crap, we're being invaded. He's like, do you have a plan, Morgan? He's like, yeah, you know, like move fast and break things. And, <laughs> and and then he he was like, well, what if that plan doesn't work? And then you open up to this giant double page spread. And it's just the two of them, and then like hundreds of these kind of flying gargoyle things. And he's like, well, if that doesn't work, we break everything. Like, <laughs> she said, break everything, and it's so fierce. But it's that kind of thing. It's like you want a hero who's just willing to go the extra mile to do what it takes to stand up. Like, I, we, I'm really into that. Like, you, you have to stand for you what you believe in, even if you, you find yourself standing alone. It's, it, that's what's important. Yeah. So speaking of fighting monsters, uh, we, we were actually... Nice, nice segue. I, I, I know. Thank you for setting me up. So, obviously, again, speaking of, of fighting monsters, uh, we were fortunate enough to be introduced to you through some friends of ours who are in your... Uh, Marvel superheroes gaming group. Who you are there? You are their their game master. Yes. So yeah. So uh, yeah. So those friends are Jesuina and uh, Chris, and they are awesome. Uh, so we do a so once a month we do a, a gaming group in um, Manhattan, and it's me, a bunch of comic writers, uh, some just good friends, and and uh, these guys, Jess and. Chris and yeah, so we've been running this game, this Marvel game, for like the last I don't know year and a half, and we only meet like once a month or once once every other month, and we have we have characters playing like Hercules and Beast and Machine Man and Jess and and Chris play a uh, Wasp and Namer the Submariner, and it's it's great because we um this goes back to what I was saying before about the importance of of making sure that every player feels important, so. Like we have a guy playing Wonder Man, and every time he comes in as Wonder Man, I make I make fake Hollywood Reporter articles for him. Nice. Um, about like what's happening in the world of Hollywood. So I'll be like, Simon Williams' latest picture bombed at the box office, and oh, did you see that? <laughs> this guy was cast as Tony Stark in the latest movie of this. And so for uh, like, and I'll print out like lawsuit papers for. For Janet, who's playing, uh, you know, who's uh, Jess, who's playing uh, the wasp, will be like, "Oh, Pym Particles Laboratory is being sued. How are you going to deal with that?" And for like, uh, you know, Submariner, I'll print out like nautical reports and be like, "Here, it's the latest nautical report about weird monsters that are eating sharks off the coast of the sea." And you know, so every character will get their own prop, and then they can deal with it like how they want to. Like, oh, well, I guess I'm gonna like. So they'll they'll all have their opportunity to be like, oh, what are you going to do in your what what's your character doing in their personal life? Oh, uh, in my personal life, I guess I'm going to deal with this naval report thing. That's so weird, or you know, and we'll talk about like what characters in Atlantis eat, like so. <laughs> I've heard I've heard about that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. So it's interesting. So like, you know, Chris Powers is like this awesome. Uh, awesome player. He's like, what do what do Atlanteans eat? They probably don't eat fish. They probably eat like hamburgers. Like that's probably a delicacy for them. Like oh, the way yes. we eat sushi is the way they think about cow, right? And so we're like, yeah, I guess that's right. Like, what what do they eat? So there's uh, there's opportunities to have these really in deep like deep conversations about like how these characters interact. You know, we have a guy playing Hercules who's dating two 
characters at the uh, two superheroes at the same time. So, like, what does he do to navigate the other one not finding out about the I other? I was just going to ask, do they know about each other? Uh, they do now, but they did when they started. So he was <laughs> Hercules was standing Snowbird and Namorita, and he was like, oh, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to navigate that. And eventually, like, you know, but every character gets their own moment to shine and do their own personal life stuff that still contributes to, like, how they feel about the characters, where every player feels like they they get that moment to shine. Like, oh, well, this is how I'm going to do this thing, or this is how I'm going to do that thing. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And then, so every character, that's really important to me. And I'll set up, like, I have f- uh, fake Twitter accounts that I've actually set up that deliver in-game information that the players oh, can nice. actually play and follow along. So we... Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a lot of fun. So, for example, we had the Sinister 66, which was 66 of Marvel's meanest, most obscure supervillains all teaming together. And they created a Twitter account that made it look like you were hacking into, like, the Avengers database. And it listed all 66 characters and what their powers were and gave you pictures of each one. Wow. Um, so the characters, when they fought them, they could be like, oh, I've read about this one. And they'd scroll on their phones to be like, oh, this is a shocker. I beat him like this guy, or Video Man from Spider-Man's Amazing Friends. I have to find him like this. So yeah, so those kind of things. I put together this crazy long video um, that was spliced together from like footage of different Spider-Man video games and episodes of Spider-Man's Amazing Friends and put them together as a big reveal for the characters when they hacked into a certain thing. They'd find a like a message from Mysterio saying, ha, 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 I fooled you all. Um, so it's a lot of fun to do those, to make those smaller props and then to make these bigger overarching props that make the characters feel that they've gained something um, and that they, they've accomplished something, that they're, they're able to move to the next level and, and feel like, yeah, that there's a, both a sense of accomplishment, but also feel like their GM has contributed to, to making something feel uh, real. You know, you, you want to end a game where characters feel like, holy moly, I, I did this thing. I beat this thing and got this thing. Because you don't want them to feel like they're just trudging on through dungeons forever and ever. You want there to feel like a real sense of accomplishment. And, and yeah, that's what's really important to us. That is a beautifully Marxist view of <laughs> of Dungeons and Dragons. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So that that to me is what's important is is together we we build a better game. And if every player is involved, we we work together to to have fun, and that's great. And that's uh, so yeah. So that's as a GM, that's what I do. And we have I think one more episode left of the the Marvel game that I'm currently running. And then, uh, but we've been just started playing this worldwide wrestling game that uh, Chris Powers brought with us, and that's a lot of fun. Is it's so different to go from playing a uh, from GMing for so long, and I GMed, you know, I've GMed for years, but to go from being a GM to being a uh, to player, a player, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm. I'm... That's kind of an interesting transition because I have actually uh, yet to experience being a player. I have only been a GM, uh, and I'm, I'm you know at some point it'll happen. I'm looking forward to that point, but I'm also really enjoying being a GM. I love being a GM because I love telling stories. Mm. 
But I also love being a player because I'm a little ludicrous and I play the same type of character all the time. I, I may so, or may not have heard about that. Yeah, like I, I play a... There, so I'm playing like in the wrestling game. I play, I play, I don't remember her name. Oh, I don't remember her name. But basically I play a female wrestler who's like very, oh, Mr. In, Mr. Indestructible Man. But she's a female wrestler. But her name is Mr. Indestructible Man. And she's like super, super into like her, her thing is that she's a woman who's projecting to be like a man, doing everything like a man would do because she feels like, like if you see her name on the bill, you're like, oh, it's it's this dude. But then she walks out, and she's like this woman, which feels like very like wrestling ish, like how people wear different costumes and mm -hmm. appropriate different pieces of culture. Whether it's you know not always necessarily politically correct, but in that kind of like, there's a lot of appro cultural appropriation going on in wrestling. I thought, yes. well, wouldn't it be interesting sure. to have some gender appropriation where a, a female character is, is definitely believes like she's all dolled up to be a man and so really yeah fun though I, I love that in fact um sometimes that happens in uh, other pop culture as well most notably for me is joss whedon's dollhouse the two season show in which uh it's a guy's mind being trans or being transferred like it, all his memories are downloaded into different and one time it's a woman that they're not downloaded into it's brilliant i love that just that, yeah, I, that gender bending, because especially when it's well done, you just go, oh, right. That's how a guy would do that. But also, it, it, but this is a woman interpreting it, you know, and that's so cool. Right. And so, yes, so that's exactly it. And there's a really interesting opportunity with with my character because she's a, her archetype is golden boy. So she projects a lot of pro-American anti-diverse sentiment. So mm -hmm. she may be a little racist. So, <laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, she may be a little racist. So she was like fighting this other character, like in a wrestling way called, his name was just German Bob or whatever. And you're like, oh, I'm fighting German Bob. And she's just spousing all this anti-Nazi rhetoric. She's like, go back to Germany, you kraut, say hello to Hitler. These kind of like crazy ludicrous things because she's so pro-nationalist. And it's so interesting to be, it's interesting and fun to be ludicrous. And, and it's interesting to play a character who is so, because wrestling is so, I, I was never really into wrestling. I mean, Wrestling was really cool. I think my dad took me to first or second WrestleMania. And so, nice. um, but I haven't really followed it really since Hulk Hogan had his own cartoon TV show in the 80s. <laughs> it's a little, Where, while, it's like, a little while ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm old. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, and so all the, all the weird Eastern European countries were bad guys. And then all the American characters were like, you know, archetypal, like, oh, my name's Junkyard Dog and a little racist. My name's Junkyard Dog. I'm a black guy in a collar with a dog. Uh, you know, like, hey, I'm Roddy Roddy Piper. I'm Scottish. Listen to all my bad Scottish stereotypes. I, I am Ivan Drakvarnovich, an island chic and whatever. Like, just horrible, horrible, horrible stereotypes and racist stereotypes. 
but it was uh, it was interesting to do that from from a reverse standpoint because wrestling is always about like how you can rally up that crowd and how you can sort of subvert some of those tropes and so there was an opportunity with this character who's like this golden boy kind of archetype to be like oh the character is called the golden boy there's an opportunity to subvert all of that and and play just super over the top level racist kind of unquiet american kind of character that's that's a fun addition to any gaming group because it's sort of that that pivotal piece that everyone else can sort of play around as well right and and we had a lot of fun and one of the things that one of the things that a great GM is able to do. And one of the things that Chris, who's just starting his GMing is, is really able to do is he's able to visualize the information. So I think it's again, really important, especially when you're playing a super casual game is to take the opportunity to create visual reference for your visual reference for your players so that they have some way to concretize the imagination so when we play the Marvel superheroes game, yeah, like everybody has played, you know, like everybody pretty much knows what Marvel characters look like. But to be able to move game pieces around on a board gives people who don't have that chance an opportunity to have something tactile. Um, they have an opportunity to visualize the space, and that was that I think is something really good players and really good GMs work together for. Is that how do we concretize the space? How do we all feel like we're working? in a shared environment. Um, and yeah, so I really liked it when Chris brought his little wrestling figurines in and we were all able to be like, on this one and on this one and on this one and yeah, just playing around with it. That to me is a lot of fun. It's, it's I love that opportunity to um, be in a shared space with somebody and share this collective narrative. Um, that's something that um, not even comics is really able to replicate. I love comics. And but it's always a for the most part it's a singular experience. Like I'm going to read that comic by myself in my own space. But when you're gaming, you're sharing a space together. You're sharing common rules together, and that's that's something that's that's truly truly unique. Yeah, very very much so. So David, I've, I've got one last question for you, and this should be an easy one. How often does Chris yell "Imperious Rex"? Oh, a lot. <laughs> a lot. I, just, I felt like that was a thing. Oh, yeah. So he, he screams like Imperious Rex. And then he'll be like, uh, he'll say things like, just like really blowhearted things like, you dare challenge the might of the monarch of Atlantis? Foolish mortals, I shall destroy you. Yeah, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And, well, and, and not for nothing. But so not for nothing, but his lovely wife, Jess, is fantastic wasp because she's the leader of the group. And she's really, really interesting because uh, she's recognized that Submariner is not necessarily like super easy to get along with. And so uh, <laughs> she has what she's been able to do is she'd be like, oh, well, you know, that's fine. I'll just grow and like swat him out of the sky when he's being obnoxious. <laughs> She's like, oh yeah, I can grow. Just, oh, oh, I see. I see how it is. You're gonna challenge me. This, this really, yeah, so, really, really, what this is is Chris and Jess's relationship with superpowers. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Because Jess is great. Oh, you know, so before she, before she actually played, it's amazing. So before Jess actually played as Wasp, 
she was Mockingbird and she, and Chris was the U.S. agent. And as Mockingbird, she solved all of the puzzles. So I'd have people like do individual puzzles and contribute to a bigger thing. And she'd be like, my puzzle's done. Where's your puzzle, Mr. U.S. agent? So it's always like super sassy. Like, done. Oh, you guys need that door unlocked? Done. Got it for you because I solved the puzzle. Done. And so it's awesome. It was, it was great to see oh, that man. level of like, she she is like super subtle. She's amazingly smart. And I love how uh, great players um, can really elicit that kind of that that just that little bit of sass. Because you can have those really loud players, but the the players who are players who are really soft are are all great because everybody contributes to that larger whole, you know. And that's amazing. Well, David, thank you for coming on. We've we've thoroughly enjoyed having you on here. So, so where can people find your work? Uh, so The Only Living Boy is available. Um, the first three volumes are out in stores now. Uh, you can buy it at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Toys R Us, Target, Walmart, and your comic book shop. And then uh, you know, and then Green Lantern Convergence is available at your comic shop if you can find it uh, as single issues or as a trade paperback from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local comic shop. And where can people find, oh, and then find I, you personally? I, I, Oh yeah, and I'm on Twitter at David Gallagher, and then on Facebook at David Gallagher, and uh, website is davidgallagher.com. Yeah, and I, I was going to point out um, on Amazon you can also pre-order your number four and number five volumes oh, of yes. Still Living Boys Fall. Yep. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes, you can, and those uh, those come out next spring and next summer, respectively. Oh, we're looking forward to them. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Well, again, thank you, David. Hi, right, folks. If you like what we do, make sure you head on over to thereforegeek.com and check out our blog posts and our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So once again, I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. And you've been listening to Therefore a Geek.